Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, top supply chain industry professionals and the nation's top thought leaders join host Brian Strait and share their unique insights to help supply chain managers stay one step ahead of their competition. This is Talking Supply Chain. Hello, and welcome to Talking Supply Chain. My name is Brian Strait, and today we're going to attempt to make some sense out of today's supply chains. When I was younger, my father used to tell me that at the end of the day, businesses cared less about what the rules were, they just wanted to know. In other words, constant change was not good for them. What they wanted was stable rules so they could set their business strategy. If there is one thing we've all learned about in the last few years about supply chains is that we don't know what the rules are currently, and we don't know what they're going to be. Our guest today is Keith Hartley, CEO of AI-powered sourcing platform Levadata. And Keith is hopefully going to help us understand the current situation and help help you map out a path forward, perhaps. Welcome, Keith. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks, Brian. Glad to be here. Great. Um, let's get started. Uh, before we get into some of the questions and, and, and try to make sense of, of what we should be doing from a supply chain perspective, can you stop by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and Levadata and what you guys do? Sure. I'm uh, currently CEO of Levadata, uh, the, the leading software application helping teams in procurement and supply chain come together at the very bottom of the supply chain, trying to shed a light on companies uh, who buy direct materials and manufacture products. So how they go to market, how they think about risk, how they think about new product introduction, and how they have visibility into their supply chain. I've been involved with uh, supply chain for about 25 years now, various uh, executive sales and general management roles, and I'm thrilled to talk to you today. Great. Great. Um, happy to get into this. I'm very, very thrilled to actually get into this topic because um, I think it's interesting. Um, there's been a lot of talk about nearshoring, reshoring, as, as you know, as, as all of us listeners know as well. And there's also a lot going on in that space. And there's a lot of movement to Mexico and, and other Asian countries outside of China. But I, I don't know that we're ever going to be able to fully divest our supply chains from China or Chinese influence even. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how our supply chains really are intertwined with China at this point? How, how, much, how much are we relying on China? Yeah, uh, the short answer is we're incredibly intertwined and completely reliant on, on China at this point. And it's been that way for a while now. You know, the latest statistics that I've seen show that about 72% of the world's products flow in some way through uh, their, their supply chain flows in some way through China. Now, um, that is not an easy needle to move. To move it one or two percentage points is a tremendous amount of volume and a tremendous amount of economic activity. Um, you know, nearshoring and reshoring and concepts like this have been around as long as I have. Companies have always wanted to be robust and have a resilient supply chain but it's incredibly difficult to move away from China. Now, the latest news and various surveys, I know Gartner does a study where 95% of global supply chain leaders and procurement leaders evaluated uh, are evaluating and looking to shift off of a Chinese sourcing strategy. Now, most of them have struggled mightily uh, for a variety of reasons that I think we'll get into. But, you know, China is the, the economy of China and its suitedness to supply chain. They're, they're incredibly mineral and material rich, but they really lead the world in means of production. So taking the bare 
uh, ingredients of the world and producing things that make their way into the supply chains of so many products, that's a very difficult cycle to just say, we don't want to buy from China anymore. Or, you know, you might buy a product that is assembled and called made in America, but it's assembled in America. And so the components that are in that product in a way, one way, shape or form, statistically will flow through China. So, um, you know, very hard to decouple um, kind of the rich economies of the world, like the United States consumption and break that from the supply chain dependency that we have on China today. It, it sounds really good in practice, right? We'll just move our stuff out of China. And and, and, and I, I think I want to bring up an example here of electric vehicles, because right? I think that's a good example of, of how dependent we are on China. Um, you know, I mean, there is the talk, obviously, EVs, the EV supply chain, um, big pushes in the United States, Europe, other countries, right, to, to adopt EVs. The While we try to do that, I don't know that we can do that without China, for instance. So... I found a New York Times analysis last year that found that China refines 95% of manganese, 73% of cobalt, 70% of graphite, and 67% of lithium. So if you make an EV, you can't do it without those those minerals, right? So speaking like from the EV supply chain at this point, is it possible for us to transition to an EV future without China? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is no, uh, not in the right. near or medium term. I, I wish I was more optimistic. I mean, look, longer term, anything is possible with the right market competition and uh, governmental policy around the world. Um, but the sort of uniqueness of your question lies in the production and the refinement of those of those materials, manganese and cobalt and graphite and lithium, you know, China has the means to refine. So while they sit on stockpiles of these minerals and ingredients, they've actually invested in the infrastructure required to refine them and turn them into EV batteries. You can't just go from manganese and cobalt to a battery. There's a, um, you know, a process there. And that's where China has that means of production or refinement. Now, beyond the core materials, you know, I, I see two other, two predominant challenges uh, for transitioning EV out of China. One is just, you know, the alternate location problem, which I, I alluded to. It's the production and the refinement of those ingredients into something like a battery. And then it's the time required to do that, the time and the money required to do that. These are not small hundred million dollar or single billion dollar factories. These are tens of billions of dollars of infrastructure on refinement. Now, the good news is with EV and battery technology, I mean, many um, people close to this problem view lithium as perhaps the greatest opportunity for a country like the United States. So, you know, lithium is the uh, mineral with the fastest growing demand as the world transitions from oil and gas to kind of a, a, a greener energy grid. Now, if you look at the Paris Agreement for climate change, global climate change targets, it's estimated that we're going by the year 2040, we're going to need at least 40 times as much refined lithium uh, to hit those global climate targets that were set out in the Paris Agreement. Now, the U.S. does hold one of the top five stores of lithium uh, in the world. It's one of the top five 
uh, holders of lithium, but it refines and processes only 1% of the global output of lithium. And so the, the challenge becomes not just having the mineral, but actually refining it because we will end up in this scenario being a net exporter of lithium, letting China refine uh, and continue to deliver something like an EV battery. So um, it, this highlights why it is so really difficult with the current technology, with the current battery technology and the current refinement schemas in China for us to break our dependency on them for EV. Yeah. And, th- and that's, I mean, we use that example here and I, I, that was a great, great explanation there um, of, of the EV supply chain, but it's like that in other supply chains too, maybe not to the same extent or whatever, but you know, there are, there are processes that different countries, China does much better than other countries do in, in, in supply chains. And, and you're kind of dependent on that um, to make that work. And, and I think that leads kind of to the next question, um, which alludes back to my opening a little bit about businesses wanting to know what the rules are so they can set themselves up. And that is politics, right? And we, when we talk about China and supply chain, we can't ignore the politics of the situation. And Republicans have their own approaches to managing relations with China. Democrats have their approaches. Um, we have an election coming up in this country, you know, in November, right? And, and we don't know which direction we may want to go. Are we going to lean more towards the Democratic policies, more um, toward the Republicans? And I don't want to get into the different policies that each each of the parties have. I mean, if you're out there listening, you can go and research that for yourself. But from a business perspective um, that is interested in securing or diversifying your supply chain, without knowing what the future is going to hold politically, how, how do you move forward at this point? Yeah, it's a it's a tough question. I mean, politics is a very hot topic, particularly in the United States right now. But it's really not just about American politics. Um, You you know, either party, there's very little either administration can do to diversify a global network of supply chain operators. Mm -hmm. Now, there are different styles of the two predominant parties in the United States. One wants to create a council on supply chain resilience and use the Defense Production Act to make, you know, medicines and mitigate drug shortages. The other views tariffs and taxing uh, imports from various countries as a way to drive jobs to home and produce um, produce things locally. Um, There is no panacea for either political party to diversify supply chains. When you talk about capitalism and the free movement of goods and services and, you know, what both parties want is the same, which is low priced goods. (laughs) The American (laughs) consumer, the westernized consumer wants low priced goods and political parties, uh, while they may not use those words, they have different tactics to try to drive low priced products into the hands of their consumers. Now, an open economy with low tariffs and free trade across borders helps. um, And regulation that doesn't prohibit this um, also helps. But whether it's tariffs or import taxes or funding of additional jobs and factories to move the global supply chain forward and move move it away from one country or one theater into another is just, you know, I don't want to say it's an impossible task, but people that are close to supply chain realize that regardless of political party, 
there's very little that an administration can do to impact that flow of goods because you run the risk of having higher priced goods, uh, you know, driving up inflation and everything and the inflationary effect of higher priced goods has on your economy. So, um, you know, it's, it's not an easy problem to sort through. I do think that uh, while we would love for there to be a uh, magic pill to take and uh, move supply chains forward and have good governmental regulations and have everything click together, that's just simply not the world that we live in today. Yeah. But if anybody can come up with that pill, you will make many, many billions of dollars, I think. <laughs> Tens of billions. Yeah. Tens of billions. Yeah. So uh, all you scientists out there, get to work on that right now. Um, and hopefully you'll be a billionaire within five years. Yeah. Um, as we speak about government, um, I, I know businesses don't like government intervention much, um, but in some cases, it may not necessarily be a bad thing for the supply chain. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about regulations that have come out in recent years in the U.S., Europe, et cetera, on traceability, ESG initiatives. Um, and, and yes, there's some costs added to products sometimes. It, but I mean, overall, I, you know, it, it, everybody may have their own view as far as ESG goes, but uh there's probably more good than bad in many cases with some of these initiatives and the traceability of products and sourcing, et cetera. Um, so as, as I think about how the government got involved in some of these initiatives and, and putting out these regulations, are there lessons that we can learn from how the gov government's handled ESG rules and apply those to the supply chain dependence on China? So in, in other words, what I'm asking, I think, is, is there a government-driven or maybe more accurately a government-aided solution to diversification possible? You know, it's a it's a nice idea to to talk about, and I think there are a lot of lessons around um, you know climate change and around how the world has and continues to struggle around coalescing around climate change. I mean, look, you take different countries that are at different economic output with different values for their people and their citizens and things that they value. And you try to get them to agree on something like climate change targets and climate change goals. And we still struggle in the world today agreeing on that. Maybe that there's a problem. Maybe that there needs to be a, uh, you know, a joint uh, group that shepherds this globally. We still struggle in the world to coalesce around things like climate change. So while with ESG you know, very specifically how that relates to China is everyone wants ESG. Very few have been willing to pay for it up until now. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's changing. That's on the board uh, discussion at every company that I know. The challenge becomes, what are the goals? Where are the goalposts in the football vernacular? So yeah. how are those regional goals? Are those country goals? Are those industry goals? Are there are those um, you know goals set by some international governing body that everyone opts into? Simply none of that exists. So today, a lot of the ESG mandates, you get a lot of well-intentioned groups and associations and countries leading different charges and parts of ESG. But until we see broad-based norms that are accepted. It will remain the wild, wild west in terms of ESG adoption and sort of how you codify the rules of ESG. You incorporate it into software. You change human behavior. You change human buying behavior. 
So for me, what we learned from China from that is that it's not a one size fits all in terms of how we manage China and a dependency on China for our supply chain. The United States has a very different way of looking at China than um, Laos does or than Australia does or than Belgium does. And so we are simply looking at economic output and what is derived, what is needed and what is derived out of China to incorporate to make products. And so I just simply don't see broad scale governmental programs having a good impact. I see them as being well-intentioned and governmental intervention can be good, but things like climate change and ESG simply show that there is no determination for the goal or how, uh, how you quote win in this solution space. And so I think that's part of the struggle, certainly as a, as a CEO of a software company, how I think about ESG, it's a moving target. And it's similar to the way climate change, you see that being bantered about across many countries and governmental organizations throughout the world. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think companies have kind of responded to these things and the challenges you've been talking about um, by simply trying to diversify and de-risk their supply chains, right? And, and in order to do that, what they've done is, hey, let's move stuff out of China. So Mexico has been a big beneficiary of that. Um, there's a lot of investment going on in Mexico, but a lot of other Asian countries too, Singapore, Vietnam, Malaysia, um, have benefited quite a lot from companies moving facilities or sourcing materials from those places. But each of these countries, which regardless of which country it is, comes with another set of challenges for the supply chain. Um, in the case of, for instance, Malaysia, there's been a lot of talk about human rights issues in, in Malaysia. Um, that companies seem to be aware of and, and deal with uh, potentially. So as, as companies look to move outside China and, and go to other countries, other areas, other regions, what kind of strategy should they be thinking about um, when dealing with how they set up operations in these regions? Yeah, I, I think it, it starts with an acknowledgement that diversification is good. Um, mm-hmm. So many of the world's supply chains are... Um, are dependent upon single sourced suppliers buying a part from a manufacturer and not having another source of that part or that metal or that ingredient. So I think starting with diversification is key. Secondly, um, what I talk to a lot of other CEOs about is this is, uh, this can't be a whim project. This isn't i I'm, this is going to be the flavor of the day this year. And, you know, by next year, I'll be on to the next whim. This is, and needs to be a part of a five, a 10, a 15 year project. Mm-hmm. And I say project because I don't know if it's ever complete Because as companies bring new products on, as they sunset products, as they're constantly monitoring and evaluating and de-risking their supply chain, I'm not sure this challenge ever goes away. And so this is a long-term progression towards better. So too too many leading companies and emerging manufacturing companies have what I call the asymmetric information problem in their supply chain. They only see a part of the problem and they will react to that part of the problem. Maybe it's paying high prices. Maybe it's I've got too much in China, but they're not looking at the other costs of shipping to other areas. What type of labor incentives there are? Uh, Are we able to source reliably 
in another country? Are we able to get a good rate or do we have to pass that on to the consumer? What does that do for our lead times in terms of how long it takes to get these parts? So the strategy has to be long. It has to be diverse. And the third sort of pillar that I would say when thinking about setting up operations in any country other than your core country of operation is it starts with insights. You have to be able to go deeper than many companies are going today into the origin story of their products. Mm -hmm. Meaning if I have 500 parts that go into my product, I need the traceability of those 500 parts. I need country of origin. I need to know who's manufacturing them, who's doing the contract work on that, who's doing the ODM or design manufacturing work. I need to be able to be very specific and know the origin story of all of the parts that go into my product. So once you have diversification, you have visibility, you take the long term, I think that's when you really begin to de-risk your supply chain. Now, companies like Mexico have been benefiting from a move away from China, um, obviously to nearshore closer to the markets in the United States and Canada. But you're seeing more Chinese manufacturers enter into joint ventures and actually establish um, manufacturing operations in Mexico. So you're not going to get away from the Chinese effect in manufacturing, but diversification, when you have multiple suppliers, you're able to buy at a competitive price and get it when you need it, is good for every company that makes products. And that's ultimately what these companies want. I need to be able to make a product that I believe this is a good price that I can then sell and recognize revenue. And so these are, you know, you've got to have a really long, um, uh, a long view forward because this is not, in, if it were easy, if you could just do, you know, two things and then on to the next whim project, um, companies would have enacted this. This is really difficult work, uh, but it's the most uh, important work, I believe, for the modern manufacturer to undertake. Yeah. And, and just, I, you know, my own thought, and you mentioned this, I mean, this is a long-term process. I mean, when you move a supply chain, you don't just suddenly decide, Hey, next week we're going to get stuff from here. You know, and, right. I mean, this, this is a long-term process, a lot of investment that goes into that um, to do it. So I, I, I think right. in many also, ways, I was going to say, you also get, you know, products, you get different versions of. So, I don't know, think about a phone or a car, you get, you know, the 15th version or the 25th version, but then you're bringing new products to market. So the thing about supply chain, it's not static, it's ever moving. And if you don't have a system of record to diversify and de-risk and make sure you are getting current market rate, the best current market rate possible, if you're not taking action on that, it's really hard to build a sustaining manufacturing business for the long term. So, you know, someone may have a, um, you know, an idea, we got to get out of China, we got to move to Mexico, you start making that move, maybe product quality suffers, maybe price goes up, maybe you have delays in terms of when you can get products out to your consumer. When you start adding these things up, it can be, it, it causes a lot of fear. It starts a fear cycle in the executives at a lot of manufacturing companies. So a lot of what I do is talk to 
um, executives at manufacturing companies about how to embrace a change management process, how to embrace using information to make better decisions and to start this journey. And it's not a journey that takes six months. Yeah. It takes many, many years, but the companies that have invested the time and the effort and the people into making this change inevitably are healthier and stronger as manufacturers out the other end. Yep. Yep. So tying this all back to my initial <laughs> thought here, right, which is, which is, can we ever actually de-risk ourselves, diversify away from China altogether? Um, you mentioned Chinese companies investing in Mexico. Uh, Mexican companies. I mean, in some cases, China may just Chinese companies may simply be opening a facility in Mexico. Um, so even if you may be nearshoring your your supply chain to Mexico, you may still be dealing with China or Chinese companies. Um, and that's the case. So you know, we've got that going on. We've got, like we mentioned, the presidential election coming up, control of Congress, um, which could change the approach in the way we manage relations with China um, and other countries, for that matter, not just not just China. Um, so for executives in the supply chain these days that are, that are looking to make these decisions, and, and as you mentioned, long-term decisions on their supply chains and their procurement operations, is there a right play at this point? I mean, what, what, we should, what should they do? Yeah, I, um, you know, I'm the uh, eternal optimist about global manufacturing. I think there has never been a greater point in time to be involved with all things supply chain and procurement. And it's because what co the COVID pandemic has shown us is that the, the embrace of technology and systems can truly make the manufacturing world smaller. <laughs> so one of the things that I, I do a lot is I advise and talk to people about starting or continuing their digital strategy. So starting if they don't have one and continuing extending that digital strategy to not just supply chain, but to procurement. For so long, those of us in manufacturing have, um, have not been properly served with the right tools and platforms and decision intelligence to do our job better. And people at manufacturing companies in supply chain and procurement have done unbelievably great work with out these tools. And so now what you're seeing is with this technology embrace, you're seeing these manufacturing firms get a firmer grasp on what I call their downstream manufacturing business, actually all the way down to sourcing the parts, metals, and ingredients that they need to make products. So the time is now, the time is right, because we now have, you know, wonderfully contextualized data and systems that help people really do their job the most efficiently and effectively that they can do. Now, of course, I have, you know, I think about having a multi-pronged approach. You've got to have, you've got to think about visibility. Like, do you have visibility in your purchasing? Can you track country of origin and traceability? You've got to have diversity. So how do you, how do you, you have a robust way to move away from being single sourced both at the supplier level, but at the country level, the regional level, however you want to cut that. But the third leg of that approach is what I call action. So many manufacturing companies, they will say, I love diversity, of course, in my supply chain, visibility, yes, I struggle with that, but I have a little bit of that. 
But the third stool is action. How do you take action based on what you know? And the leading manufacturers today have embraced technology and software systems to allow them to take action. So that's taking action and having strong rigor around onboarding new suppliers and understanding their business and how they conduct business and how they ask for quotes and how they onboard suppliers. So visibility, diversity, and action is kind of a simple approach, but there's a lot of uh, richness in there as manufacturers, as executives look to make better decisions for their supply chain procurement organizations. I don't think the world has ever had uh, better solutions and better ways to help manufacturers solve these problems than we do right now. So I'm incredibly optimistic for what the future has in all things supply chain and procurement and how those two great thought centers inside of companies can continue to collaborate and communicate together. So in the past, procurement, supply chain, and uh, product design, product engineering have all been siloed and separate. And I'm seeing an acknowledgement now by manufacturing companies that these functions are blending more and there needs to be better tooling and better approaches for how these disparate groups collaborate inside of a manufacturer. Yep. Well, uh, you convinced me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody else is convinced, but you've convinced All me. Right. So uh, yeah. we're, we're good. So at, at least one person is, is on board with you. All right. So, Fantastic. Hey, that's, that's great. I'll start there. Yeah. Um, Keith, thank you very much for your time uh, today. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, how might they be able to do that? Yeah. Come check us out at levadata.com uh, and I'm on LinkedIn and uh, please uh, yeah, look forward to speaking with many of you and, and hope you found it informative. Thank you, Brian. Right. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. Uh, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank uh, Keith Hartley from Levadata for speaking with us today on this topic. And a special thank you to all of you out there listening. We, I greatly appreciate you spending time with us today. For Supply Chain Management Review and the Talking Supply Chain Podcast, I'm Brian Strait. Thank you for listening. Talking Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. You can find it on scmr.com, supplychain247.com, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. For more information on this topic or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, a print or a digital subscription to our publication, visit scmr.com. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For Supply Chain Management Review, I'm Brian Strait, and thank you for listening.